If one is in the midst of mourning for a temple that is gone, how can one at the same time see the extraordinary edifice, see the rejoicing in Jerusalem, see something for whose absence one is mired in mourning in the first place? The answer seems to be that in mourning for the temple, the temple is in a certain sense kept alive. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 259, Mourning and Memory. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the summer of 1977, the newly elected Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, went on the TV show Meet the Press and was immediately asked about his meeting with President Carter. Begin, however, had more pressing matters on his mind. He said, quote, With your permission, before I answer this very important question, I would like to say a few words about the day we now meet because of its universal importance. Today, in accordance with our calendar, it is the ninth of the month of Av. It is the day when... 1,907 years ago, the Roman legions, the 5th and the 12th, launched their ultimate onslaught on the Temple Mountain, set this temple ablaze, and destroyed Jerusalem, subjugating our people and conquering our land. Historically, this is the beginning of all the suffering of our people, dispersed, humiliated, and ultimately now a generation physically destroyed. We remember that day and now have the responsibility to make sure that never again will our independence be destroyed and never again will the Jew become homeless or defenseless. Actually, this is the crux of the problems facing us in the future, end quote. That Begin chose to speak about Tisha B'Av may have been surprising to many watching, as it certainly was not something that any previous prime minister of Israel would have done. But it followed naturally from what Begin's experience was the night before, which was his attending a Tisha B'Av service and hearing the traditional reading of the Book of Lamentations. It bears noting, however, that Lamentations is not the name accorded by Jewish tradition to this biblical book, and that the more traditional appellation tells us a great deal regarding what Jewish mourning and memory is about. The book of Lamentations, according to Jewish tradition, was written by Jeremiah, and it describes the Babylonian destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces? How is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the Gentile. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her young women are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy, and from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like deer that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. This is the book's description of Jerusalem bereft of the temple. The opening word of this book is Echa, which means how, or how is it? Beginning the first verse, how doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? Echa is spelled starting with the letter Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, and the chapter itself, like others, proceeds in alphabetical order. Thus, the second chapter also begins with Aleph, and again with the word Echa, how. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? The Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob, and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. 
he hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. What is striking is that this word Eicha not only begins the book, but is the traditional Jewish name for it. Eicha, how, as a word, resounds through the Jewish centuries, appearing also in elegy after elegy that was composed by Jews for the ninth of Av. And the name at first glance is striking and strange. Would not lamentations have been more logical as a way of referring to this description of the destruction of Jerusalem? What kind of a name for a book is Echa? How? The answer, I think, is twofold. On the one hand, the word how, how did this happen, inspired Israel to study the past, to look back at the fall of Jerusalem, not only during the first but also the second temple period, and to learn from what occurred. This lesson was central to Menachem Begin's life. Thus, in his memoir, The Revolt, Begin, in describing what was called the Saison, when in 1944 the Haganah collaborated with the British in rounding up and arresting Irgun members, he, Begin, describes how he ordered his own soldiers, the soldiers of the Irgun, not to retaliate against the Haganah, and how they all obeyed. Begin explained in his book that the Irgun fighters did not retaliate because they remembered how Jerusalem fell to Rome, how the Second Temple was destroyed, because of civil war among the Jews. And they, the Irgun, therefore resolutely decided that they would not let civil war occur again 1,900 years later. Begin writes as follows, describing the Irgun members, quote, They were moved by faith, a profound faith that believed the day was not far distant when all the armed camps in Israel would stand and fight shoulder to shoulder against the oppressor. In that hope and with that faith, we said it was worthwhile enduring grievous suffering. We dared not destroy our faith by opening a bloody abyss between those who were still brothers and might yet become comrades in arms. We saw our people in Europe in the endless procession of death. We saw the ghettos going up in flames. We saw the oppressor plotting against us all. And from down the corridors of history, we heard the echo of those other wars, the cursed internecine wars in dying Jerusalem 19 centuries before. The underground cellar is a high watchtower. Not logic. But instinct said imperatively, no, not civil war, not that at any price. And who knows, perhaps instinct is the very heart of logic, end quote. Thus, the very name, Echa, how, how did this happen, inspires us to look back to the past. But we can add that there is also another way to interpret the how that is Echa. It is a form of asking God, how has this been allowed to happen? For Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, It is the fact that the prophet Jeremiah asked this question that allows us to also cry out in the same way to God. How? How can this have happened? Understood this way, the asking of how reflects a remarkable aspect of Jewish memory, which is a refusal to cease mourning for the temple, which is bound up with a recollection of all that has been lost. This is how Jerusalem and the temple remained in the Jewish consciousness, never disappearing from Jewish minds and hearts. An interesting phrase, noted by Rabbi Soloveitchik, appears in the seventh verse of the book. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her misery all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Again, the sentence speaks of all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, meaning in the process of continuing to mourn throughout the centuries for Jerusalem and for the temple, in the process of continuing to ask of God, how has this happened? The Jewish people recalled not only the destruction, but also the beauty of Jerusalem as it was, the beauty of the temple as it was. 
This means that in grief, the distance of generations was traversed. And in a certain sense, the Jerusalem that was and the temple that was lived again in Jewish minds and hearts. We have mentioned briefly before the memoir describing the trip taken by William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, to the Holy Land, a memoir, I believe, edited by Seward's son. The memoir describes Seward during his journey in the 1870s, standing on Friday afternoon watching Jewish mourning at the Western Wall before Shabbat. The memoir tells us as follows, quote, Here, whether it rains or shines, they come together at an early hour, old and young, men and women and little children, the poor and the rich in their best costumes, discordant as the diverse nations from which they come. They are attended by their rabbis, each bringing the carefully preserved and elaborately bound text of the book of the Lamentations of Jeremiah, either in their respective languages or in the original Hebrew. For many hours they pour forth their complaints, reading and reciting the poetic language of the prophet, beating their hands against the wall and bathing the stones with their kisses and tears. It is no mere formal ceremony. During the several hours while we were spectators of it, there was not one act of irreverence or indifference. End quote. And the memoir gave this chapter a heading, which is a quote from the Psalms. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark you well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generation following. The book cites, in other words, a verse not about Jerusalem and its destruction, but about Zion and all its glory, signifying that in the midst of mourning, Jerusalem came to life once again. In this vein, the turn of the 19th century rabbi Chaim of Elohim once took note of the strange grammatical choice in a Talmudic statement. Kol hamitabel al-churban beit mikdash all who mourn for the temple, merit to see its rejoicing. The Talmud does not say, Rabbi Chaim noted, that all who mourn for the temple, Yizkeh, will merit in the future to see the rejoicing of the temple. Rather, it says, all who mourn for the temple, Zocheh, merit in the present to see the temple's rejoicing. But how can this be? If one is in the midst of mourning for a temple that is gone, how can one at the same time see the extraordinary edifice see the rejoicing in Jerusalem, see something for whose absence one is mired in mourning in the first place? The answer seems to be that in mourning for the temple, the temple is, in a certain sense, kept alive. Jews bewailed what was physically lost, but thereby a vision remained within Jewish hearts. This can be further seen in a remarkable rabbinic description of the second temple. Masechet Midot, literally, tractate measurements. This tractate in the Mishnah is utterly unlike all the other tractates. Most of them are about law, rituals, not just commonly performed ones, but also what one does in hypothetical cases. Say, if an ox scores another ox, if a particular offering in the temple is mixed up with another, if one accidentally plants three types of seeds in the same field, etc. But this tractate is about architecture. It describes bit by bit, room by room, gate by gate, the layout of the second temple. It is an attempt in words, in text, to create an image in one's mind. Incredibly, this tractate was written down in the age of Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was born decades after the destruction of the temple. And it illustrates how particular Jews were in preserving the image of the temple in their minds. Not only its generalities, but the midot, the very measurements of the mikdash, the temple. And so it was studied in the centuries that followed. Can you, ladies and gentlemen, think of any other civilization or people painstakingly recalling every inch of an edifice even 50 years after it was destroyed? let alone a thousand years. Rabbinic texts are seen as legalistic, and they often are. And the very name for this tractate, Tractate Measurements, sounds incredibly didactic. But ladies and gentlemen, can there be a more exquisite embodiment of a people's love affair with a building 
that crown their sacred city? Can there be any greater reflection of a people's refusal to forget, of a people's ability to maintain memory in the midst of mourning? Thus, Eicha, the name, how can this be, embodies a Jewish refusal to forget. Right outside the Israel Museum in Jerusalem today is a scale model of Second Temple-era Jerusalem crowned by a model of the temple itself. This was once at the Holy Land Hotel, and then it was brought to the museum in 2006. I always loved the model, but did not know its story until I read online about it in a book that was put out by the Israel Museum. As we may have mentioned before, the model was the conception of Hans Kroch, a Jewish developer who lived in Germany during the war. His wife was murdered by the Nazis, but he and his children managed to escape. Then in 1948, loss followed loss. His son, defending Nitzanim in the Negev, was killed in Israel's War of Independence. Kroch, the owner of the Holy Land Hotel, wanted to honor his son's memory, and so he approached the archaeologist Michael Aviona and suggested that, because the old city of Jerusalem had been lost and Jews could not visit the most sacred parts of the city, perhaps he could create a model so that ancient Jerusalem could be remembered. This model would be commissioned by Kroch in memory of his son. This says so much of how memory and mourning in Judaism go hand in hand, and also of how the romance between the Jewish people and Jerusalem preserved and sustained the Jews throughout the centuries. The Book of Lamentations, or indeed of Eicha, is read on the saddest Jewish day of the year, but it highlights how Jewish memory, the Jewish love for the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jewish refusal to forget lie at the essence of our eternity. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.